I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to On Fairy Stories. I strayed out of thought and time. Is not this day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, it's done me good, yeah. This is our third episode here of On Fairy Stories. It's a new podcast that I created um, with the hopes of exploring um, fairy tales and myths and legends that can teach us something about our present moment. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, is really our main inspiration here, and especially drawing on all his wisdom from his essay On Fairy Stories. And I really want to just emphasize again what he says in that essay, which is that a lot of times people might say, well, you know, what are the point of fairy stories? They have nothing to do with reality. They are escapism. They're a way of avoiding life. And I could not uh, disagree more and neither could Tolkien. So he would say that if a man was in prison, would you blame him for wanting to think of things other than prison walls and prison bars? Would you not want him to think of escape? Would you not want him to imagine things beyond the room he lives in? Now, I'm not saying that where you're living or what's happening in your life is a prison. (laughs) I'm definitely not saying that. Um, But I think that there's a lot of value to uh, imagination and to thinking about things that are beyond our current circumstances. And I would also argue that uh, exercising our minds in that way Uh, allows us to engage more fully with our present moment. So that's the goal of this podcast on fairy stories is to explore uh, compelling stories of lost worlds, to uh, discover maybe myths and legends and stories we've forgotten about, and to find uh, the wisdom there and to explore big philosophical and theological questions uh, together. So um, hopefully with some uh, engaging sound design and um, some good resources, some good theologians and philosophers and storytellers will be able to discover something new together. So if you are enjoying the podcast, I would so appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, especially with a new podcast that is so important so that it comes up in searches and, um, you know, shows up on people's radar. You can um, learn more about the show, and I always put uh, links and uh, other resources for each episode um, on the website on fairystories.com. So again, I'm Katie Marquette, and thank you so much for tuning in. Today's topic is going to be all about time. The other day when I looked at the calendar and I saw that it was already mid-May, I was honestly pretty shocked. 
I mean, we've all been through periods of our of our lives where time is moving very quickly or very slowly, but this one really took me by surprise, and I really think it has a bit to do with um, this period of life that we're living in, this period of history, uh, where we are quarantined and where time has quite literally, uh, for most of us, been quite slowed down. Um, when I brought this up to Chris, my husband, he said that it has a lot to do with um, with the way we make memories. So if you think of uh, maybe a weekend away you had or a vacation you took, and maybe it was only a week or a few days, but that memory is probably really crystal clear, maybe more crystal clear than uh, weeks that you spent at your job or at home uh, in your routine. And that's because our brains are quite literally stimulated by new new experiences. We are creating new pathways in our brains when we experience new stimuli like that. And I think that's one of the values of traveling and um, is that it can sort of shake your mind up and um, force your brain to sort of reassess the way it thinks about the world and the way it's um, jumbling up its own memories. Um, there are plenty of trips I've taken, um, you know, when we were in college and we went to Paris for two days. I think it was even less than 48 hours. And I remember almost every moment of that trip in just such detail you know the it was so beautiful and walking the moonlit streets of Paris and hearing a cellist uh, at the Louvre and, and walking along the Seine and going to Notre Dame and the Louvre we were just so stimulated by new experiences we were so uh, amazed and in awe of what we were seeing and I think that even though it was so little time you know those maybe 35 hours in Paris occupy such a huge portion of my mind and my memories and here I am with about two months under my belt here in quarantine. And um, to be quite honest, although much of it has been really lovely, I don't have that many distinct memories of it. And I think that accounts for why time has moved so quickly. So while each day um, may seem slow or fast or, you know, whatever, depending on what's going on, time itself has actually sped up as it slows down. So this is just a really strange concept, the way we, we experience time. And, you know, it got me thinking, what even is time? So in order to understand a bit more about time, I went to um, a great source, um, someone who knows a lot about time. I went to um, the TV series, Doctor Who. And if you're not familiar with Doctor Who, it's a British science fiction show, um, which was first started in 1963, but has sort of gone through a number of iterations um, from 1963 to 1989, and then was uh, sort of revamped uh, in the 2000s with uh, David Tennant and Matt Smith and um, currently Jodie Whittaker. So anyway, Doctor Who uh, stars um, this very charming, very bizarre man who's really an alien. He's a time lord. And the way that he talks about time, he here's a quote from the show. He says, people assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. <laughs> and I think that actually this gets closer to um, a concept of time than we would think. Uh, we tend to think of time as point A to point B, a very clear linear um, progression that we can track, that we can view on our watches, that is something that we can understand, that we live in, that we measure our lives in. 
so after Doctor Who, I went to um, Thomas Aquinas, and I was sort of, um, you, you really, when you research these kind of things, you end up in strange areas of the internet, on forums, asking questions like, how does God experience time? And uh, there's no consensus among theologians here, um, but God experiences time, at least according to Thomas Aquinas, uh, presently, because God is I am, right? God is pure being. So if God is simply being, he is experiencing every moment, seeing every moment, participating in every moment all at once. So for God, as the creator of time, time is not from point A to point B. It is more like a great explosion of time that he being pure being can experience all at once. So kind of hard to wrap your mind around, I know. So what do fairy stories have to say about time? Um, time travel may seem more like science fiction than something for fairy tales, but actually um, time and uh, bending of time and losing time uh, comes up in a lot of fairy tales. And um, as he is sort of our uh, patron of this podcast, I of course look to Tolkien and what he would have to say about time. And I think most people, when they think of Tolkien and time, they would think of elves because elves are immortal or they're immortal at least insofar as they are tied to sort of the, uh, to, to the, to the life force of Middle Earth. They exist as long as Middle Earth exists. And of course, if you've read The Silmarillion, you know there's a very complicated backstory involving the Valar and uh, sort of these, if they aren't quite fallen angels, he would describe them more like um, Greek gods or Norse gods. Um, but he describes the beginning of time and the beginning of Earth as um, a melody, as all these different notes and choruses and uh, that it was sort of this beautiful song that was created, but there was a discordant melody being created also um, by Melkor, which is sort of uh, Tolkien's version of the devil. So created into the very fabric of time and space was this, uh, this, this, this melody that refused to conform to sort of the, the beautiful, um, compatible uh, song that was being sung at the beginning of time. And the elves are sort of all mixed up in this, uh, in this beginning narrative, but uh, we'll just, that's probably for another episode. Um, and frankly, I need to revisit the Silmarillion to get all my facts straight there. But as far as time for the elves as, how, as far as how they experience it, it's very fascinating because um, they would say, uh, you know, uh, an elf who's about 100 years old uh, would be, you know, like in their 20s would be grown up adolescent. Um, so they age much more slowly, but physically, but mentally they are far advanced. So if you see a little elf that is, um, looks to be seven years old, they will probably have the mind and bearing of a human in their twenties or something like that. Of course, there's no hard and fast rules here, but that's sort of the idea, um, with elves and the way they experience time. So, um, because of this, uh, they have a lot of respect for the arts, which I thought was really interesting because they sort of have time to experience art and leisure and um, 
They have a lot of respect for wisdom literature and are just very interested in sort of what we would call uh, the humanities and in artistic pursuits. And that's also tied to this idea of, you know, how much time one needs to create uh, and how uh, do we need leisure in order to create art? And that's actually a whole debate if we need that or not. And, you know, where does culture come from? Do we have time for culture when our entire lives are consumed by work, whether that meant you were a peasant surf farmer in the middle ages where your entire life dawn till dusk was out working outside or if you are a 21st century worker tied to your um, computer and a constant barrage of emails and meetings um, in either one of those scenarios uh, it becomes questionable how much time there is for art leisure and culture and that can be quite problematic i would argue so the elves teach us about time that slows down and so elves can be killed, um, although a um, what would kill a mortal man would not necessarily kill an elf, and they are not affected by disease, uh, so they are safe from coronavirus, but um, they can die of despair and grief, which I thought was very interesting to learn, uh, very beautiful actually. But um, they really view uh, mortal men as having the gift of death, the gift of not experiencing time in this long way where you are tied to all the tragedies of the earth uh, so i thought think that's really beautiful and interesting to think about um, our mortality as a gift and what that means uh, about time and how we experience it and if our mortality adds poignancy to our experiences here on earth knowing how fleeting it is uh, in relative terms and knowing how we really only occupy a very specific moment in time you and I will not be here likely in a hundred years and what does that mean what is a hundred years is is nothing it's a dot on the map of uh, you know thousands and thousands of years of history millions of years of history and what does that mean what does that mean to occupy such a small space in the cosmos and how do we create meaning in that small flicker of time here on earth so those are just a few of my um just thoughts about time uh now that we are all experiencing sort of a strange uh unprecedented version of it during quarantine where you're talking from. Afraid so. But you're replying to me. You can't know exactly what I'm going to say 40 years before I say it. 38? Getting this down. I'm writing in your bits. How? How is this possible? Tell me. Not so fast. Yeah, people don't understand time. It's not what you think it is. Then what is it? Complicated. Tell me. Very complicated. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Yeah, I've seen this bit before. You said that sentence got away from me. It got away from me, yeah.
wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring. In which case, you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. So we've got two great clips there. Uh, the first is from Doctor Who, and the second is from Lord of the Rings, of course. A very classic moment there, down in the mines of Moria. Uh, and they both exemplify a really interesting aspect of stories involving time and time travel. So let's think of the Athenian tragedy Oedipus. So as we all know, uh, there was a prediction that Oedipus would kill his father and marry his mother. And in an effort to avoid this terrible prophecy coming true, Oedipus was given away to a childless shepherd couple. And of course, we all know what happens. In spite of, or even perhaps because of, this effort to thwart the oracle, Oedipus does indeed kill his father on the road and marry his mother Jocasta. And when he finally learns uh, what has happened, uh, who he's actually married to, and that he did, in fact, kill his father, he is driven insane with grief and revulsion, gouging out his own eyes. Pretty dramatic ending there for somebody whose fate could not be avoided, and also um, very symbolic effort to not see um, the future and not see what you have done, a, a refusal to further engage in time there, Oedipus gouging out his eyes. So in the Doctor Who clip you heard, uh, the Doctor is speaking through a TV from the 1960s to a couple in, uh, in the present. Um, and he knows what's going to be said, though, because he has traveled in the future and he knows what they are going to say. So very meta. So that's why he describes time there as more of a ball than a line. And um, this is sort of a theme that goes throughout Doctor Who is, you know, despite all this time traveling, um, it's there's sort of a sense of inevitability um, that like sort of the doctor and his companions were supposed to arrive at certain places uh, in the way they did like that was already planned in a way it had already happened even though maybe it was in the past and they're in the future but that it, okay I'm, I'm getting confused myself so say doctor who does something in the year in our year 2010 um, back in the 1800s, but when he's living in 2010, he's actually already done it in the 1800s. So there's this very confusing um, chicken and egg situation with most time travel. Um, there's a great Doctor Who episode. This is the one I always recommend to people who are not familiar with the show. It's a great introduction, either this one or the one with Agatha Christie. But the one I'm talking about is the beautiful episode with Vincent van Gogh. So uh, in this episode with Matt Smith as the doctor, um, they travel back in time and they meet van Gogh and they're able to show him the incredible impact his paintings will have one day on the world. And uh, the doctor really hopes this will help him see how beautiful and worthwhile his life was and that he will decide against committing suicide. But uh, when they return to the future, they are devastated to learn that Vincent killed himself anyway. So we have to ask, was this inevitable? Was there any way that this could have been avoided? Can we change the past? Can we change the future? I don't know. <laughs> Gandalf talks about what we would call fate. Uh, Bilbo was meant to find the ring. So from the beginning of time, that ring was meant to fall into Bilbo's hands. And this gets into all kinds of messy questions about agency and free will. 
But if we remember Thomas Aquinas' description of God's time as eternally present, so that God can know both all things from all times and still preserve the perfect free will of his creation. And this to me confirms time is a ball and not a line. I think Doctor Who was on point there. So one famous fairy story that involves this evasion of fate is Sleeping Beauty or Briar Rose. So there's a lot of different versions of this story, but um, they pretty much all have uh, the same arc here where the, the, young, the young princess is cursed as an infant to die at 16, usually by pricking her hand on a spinning wheel. And the king and queen, being reasonable, smart people, say, let's get all those spinning wheels out of the country. I don't want to see a single wheel around here, and we're going to send our young daughter to live um, sort of isolated in the woods, in a cottage, uh, until she turns 16, so we know that she's safe and sound. Now, what happens is that because uh, she sort of lives this isolated um, existence, when she does come across a spinning wheel, which she somehow does, even though they thought they had destroyed them all in some versions, there's sort of an evil fairy that is arranged for her to find a spinning wheel, or it's Maleficent in the Disney version. Um, and of course, uh, she doesn't know how they work, and she is fascinated, and she pricks her finger and uh, falls down and seems to die. Now, um, the, the catch is that a good fairy had intervened and ensured that when she seems to die, she's actually just going to fall into a deep sleep uh, for a hundred years. Um, and she and all her family, the, all, the whole household of the castle, is going to fall into that deep dream sleep until a hundred years later, a brave prince is going to cut through all the ivy and overgrown um, hangings all over the castle and in some scenarios the dragon that waits there and is going to go and kiss the princess and wake her up and wake her whole family up with her so but she's going to have to wake up into a very changed world a hundred years will have passed so um sort of like in the um, fairy stories we talked about in episode two about where you would go um go into the land of the fairies and maybe you think that you spent one night there but it turns out a hundred years have passed and everybody you know has died <laughs> so in this scenario at least um poor sleeping beauty will get to wake up with her family all around her but uh this certainly raises questions again about if we can um, control our fate and if you hear some sort of prophecy like that what's to be done about it um, and so we have to ask the question, um, is it even good to know these things? Is it good to know the future in that way? Uh, we have to remember that in the, in the Bible, prophets are seen as very tortured souls. It's certainly a gift, but it's a, a lonely gift to be sure. John the Baptist, of course, was thought of as a madman, a voice crying in the wilderness. So again, we are reminded of the elves here who envied mankind's mortality, man's unknowing naivete, that brief but powerful experience of life on earth without, without foreknowledge and without um, knowledge of their own past with such a, a sort of a brief moment uh, of time. Their memories are very short. They can't see the future. They don't know the past, unlike elves who um, do have often the gift of foresight and certainly have lived through all the lonely ages of Middle-earth. So another great story involving a sort of deadening sleep is one of the first American folk tales, uh, Rip Van Winkle, such a great name. Uh, Washington Irving wrote about the old man who would wander into the mountains with his dog Wolf and his gun, and he would hear someone calling his name over the hills. And he would follow this strange-looking man who sort of dressed in old-fashioned uh, Dutch clothes 
up the hill, and there he would find a group of men playing a game of nine pins, and the clattering of pins is just echoing in the mountains like thunder. He would agree to drink their rum, and he would fall into a deep sleep. And when he woke, uh, his gun is all rusted, he's calling and calling, and Wolf is nowhere to be found. And uh, he reaches down, and his beard is about a foot long. <laughs> so when he comes in the village, everybody's giving him lots of strange looks. He doesn't know anyone, even though he was known for sort of uh, being quite lazy and sitting around the bar talking with his friends. He can't find any of his friends. Um, the portrait of King George in the bar is gone. Some new fella is up on the wall. Uh, he'd later learn be, uh, that fella's name is George Washington. Um, when he professes loyalty to the king, he's almost killed for being a traitor, but a young woman intervenes who turns out to be uh, Rip Van Winkle's daughter, who was just a little girl when he left, but she's a grown woman now, because it turns out 20 years has passed. He's been asleep on the mountain for 20 years. And uh, nobody really knows what happened, but they do know that uh, the thunder they hear is, is certainly the old Dutch ghosts playing nine pins. Washington Irving had a, a real knack for creating this sense of gloom and unease in his stories. And he's also, of course, very famous for the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, both of these are really fun to revisit. I highly recommend them. Um, they're also very short if you listen to them on Audible or give them a read. Only about 30 pages in total. Uh, so remember, you don't have to write a lot to make a lasting impression on uh, the literary canon. <laughs> Uh, so all these stories really make us ask the question, what does it mean to live in time? What does it mean to live in the time that is given to us? Um, let's remember Gandalf's advice again. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given us. I'm also reminded of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. Any great reader of time travel sagas knows there's a certain repetition, a certain cyclical nature to history. Human beings are much the same now as they were a hundred years ago. The same hopes, the same dreams. We are much more interconnected than we know. I strayed out of thought and time. Yeah, yeah, I should have done things a lot of good. Yeah.